The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter. This morning we are starting, uh, launching, uh, going through the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to explain to you why I believe that now is the time, as a church body, we go through this important book of Scripture together as we grow in disciples. But just first, a little background about the Gospel of Mark. One of the reasons that I love the Gospel of Mark is because it was written by the guy, my name's sake, John Mark. We all remember John Mark, don't we? Uh, John Mark, uh, the first instance we see of him, if you remember when Peter had been uh, released from prison and he went to the house there of Mary, well, that was John Mark's house, uh, his mother's house that he went to. Of course, John Mark is famously known for that period when he was, uh, when Barnabas and Paul were on their missionary journey and Paul wanted to, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, who was his cousin, along with him on the next journey, and Paul uh, and Barnabas had such a confrontation there that they wound up going separate ways because John Mark had deserted Paul on his previous missionary journey. And so Paul had the idea, listen, if he bailed on me once, he might bail on me twice. But interesting, what we see and what we find as we track through the Scriptures is that while there was that one instance where John Mark may have seemed to have been, boy, one of those who uh, had had fallen short, we find that he was very valuable to Paul. As a matter of fact, in the book of Colossians, Paul affirms John Mark to that church there in Colossus and uh, mentions him in the letter and recommends him to that church body. And then in the very last letter that Paul writes in all the New Testament, Second Timothy, we find that here Paul is, uh, knowing that he is going to go to his death, and he's writing this letter to Timothy, he writes and requests that John Mark be brought to him because he says that John Mark is very useful to me in ministry. Isn't it great, the grace of God in relationships, how at one point we see in the life between Paul and John Mark, there was uh, this, this clash or really between Paul and Barnabas, but how God works through His grace to restore relationships and also, I think, indication that He worked in John Mark's life. Peter, when he writes of John Mark in his letter, he refers to John Mark just as Paul does Timothy as his son. And so it's believed that John Mark was probably there with Peter throughout all of his early years of ministry shortly after the resurrection of Christ. And so much of what Mark records in his gospel are probably those times where he heard Peter preaching of the gospel and the things that Jesus had done. And so he records all of that for us. One of the unique things about the gospel of Mark is that it is the shortest gospel of all the other gospels. You'll like that because my sermons are going to be short, right? Uh, But it's the shortest of all. And it's believed that Mark, John Mark, had written his gospel account early, somewhere around 65 A.D., maybe 70 A.D., and he was the first one to write an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also believed that Matthew and Luke gleaned about 70% of the material that Mark had written in his gospel. They reiterated in their gospels. And so we're going to look at that. 
the Gospel of Mark, when he wrote it, he wrote it to a mindset that was very similar to our mindset and our culture in which we live today. He was probably writing to those Christians who were in Rome. Uh, That Greek mindset, that pragmatic kind of fast-paced life. And he wrote to show not only the person of Christ, but all of the things that he did. When you read the Gospel of Mark, it's not chronological, and it seems to move from one instant to the next, to kind of like we are, give us a microwave, give us a one-minute YouTube video, if we will last through one minute, because we want to see the next one. And so he writes to that mindset. Rome at that time had begun to come under persecution As a matter of fact, it was Nero who blamed the Christians when Rome had burned and he blamed the Christians for it. So Mark is probably writing to an audience that may have been questioning this Christ that they were following. And he reiterates that he is the Messiah. He is king. Just as well as he is king, he's to be king and Lord in our life. And so he writes from that. But there's some very distinct things in the Gospel of Mark as to why I believe that at this time in this church, during this season, that we need to begin to grow through the Gospel of Mark. We completed the book of Acts, the book of 1 Corinthians, and now we've looked at the art of neighboring, and we have established that the mission that we have as a local church is to win people to Jesus, make disciples of them, and send them to make disciples. That is the bottom line. That's the main focus of this body. And it should be of any church because Jesus had given us a mission, and He's called us to be along with Him in that. As I began to read through the Gospel of Mark, I had second guesses whether or not I wanted to preach through the Gospel of Mark. You know why? Because as I read through, I realized that there are great demands that Jesus puts on our life if we are going to be a follower of His. And see, I don't like preaching anything unless it's it's here in my own life. And so I realized, you know, I've got to make some adjustments in my life as a follower of Christ. And I'm not sure that I want to go there. Anybody else there with me? And so this would be a good time for church calling. So if you don't want to go through the Gospel of Mark and be a greater disciple of Jesus, you might second guess whether or not you want to participate through this. I'm just laying it out there to you in the front because there's some hard things that Jesus calls us to. But I know that it's our desire. One of the very clear distinctives in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark makes it very clear that there was a necessity for the cross. That it was necessary that Jesus go to the cross. That it wasn't an option, but as a matter of fact, it was the reason that He had come was to go to the cross. Jesus Himself knew that He was going to be going to the cross. He writes in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, Mark does of this, and you can follow along with me if you want. Mark chapter 10, verse 33, He says that we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and kill him. But after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew very well 
that the mission of his life was to go to the cross so that he might die a criminal's death, shed his blood so that you and I might have the forgiveness of sin. He would be buried and then finally he would conquer the ultimate sting of sin and that is death by raising on the third day. In Mark's Gospel, he not only writes of the necessity of the cross for our salvation, but he also writes very clearly of the necessity of the cross in your life and in my life as Christ followers. In other words, the cross didn't end that salvation for us as believers. But as disciples of Jesus... He points out very clearly in a number of passages that we too must bear the cross of Christ in our life if we're going to be professing followers of Jesus. Turn with me to chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark records for us that the crowd was calling out to him, with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a distinction there that he makes, that if we're going to follow him, then he calls us to. It's not an option. It's not an if we decide to take it up. But He calls us also to take up our cross and follow Him. Someone a few weeks ago made a statement, nobody here at the church, but they were making a statement about the illnesses that they have in life. And they said, I guess that's just a cross I have to bear. Listen, the unsaved bear that cross, right? But there's a cross that He calls us to, and it calls us to deny ourselves and follow Him. It's His will, not our will. Verse 35, He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? These are rhetorical questions and the answers we know. Verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. As we think about these demands of the cross that Christ called us to, it comes to my attention that for too long we have preached a gospel message without the cross in the believer's life. For too long, we have heard a message that's been preached or taught that did not require the gospel of taking up our cross daily and following Him. You see, we have responded oftentimes to a crossless gospel. Oh, we've heard the gospel containing the cross of Christ where He died. 
But as we read Mark's Gospel and the other Gospels, there is a cross that He calls us to take up daily in our lives and follow Him. It is not a crossless Gospel that we live out. You see, we've for too long heard a salvation without demand. We've heard a salvation without repentance. A salvation without repent, repent, uh, without, without obedience. And we've also heard a gospel without kingship. Now don't misunderstanding what I'm saying. It is by grace we have been saved. But prior to that accepting of Christ, there is a call in our lives that we must repent to turn from and turn towards Him. And Jesus said that if you love me, you'll what? Obey my commands. There's a cost that He calls us to. You see, I recognize primarily in our culture, and this started somewhere in the 60s in our culture, along with that church growth movement that do everything we can to get them in the door, and let's not make any demands there for too long. We perpetuated a gospel that answers the question to tickling ears, what's in it for me? What can God do for me? And please don't misunderstand me. There's a lot in it for us. God's blessings are there, right? And He's a loving Father. And He does give good and perfect gifts. And He blesses our life. But it's not about us. It's all about Him. We oftentimes in here people talk about what God can do for us. And ignore the fact that He's called us to follow Him. How can, how can it make my Christian life easier, more entertaining, and make me feel good? And I like feeling good, but I've discovered the greatest feeling of feeling good is when I've been broken and I turn my eyes onto Him. To me, the key verse in the Gospel of Mark is Mark Chapter 1, verse 17. Commentators would not choose this as a key verse, but I think for where we are and where we're heading, I think it's a key verse for us. Where Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let me break this verse down a little bit. Jesus says first, follow me. And when we really stop and reflect and think about what Jesus is saying, and when He says, follow me, it necessitates that there is a cross that we have to carry in our lives. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to what? Persecute you. And so He says, follow me. It means follow me even where it's not comfortable for you to go. He says, follow me. And that second part, He says, and I will make. You see, it's, it's not natural for anyone who has begun to follow Jesus to not be transformed in their lives through the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit of God that we grow more in our knowledge of Him and we live out and reflect more of the nature and character of Christ in our lives. You see, for the believer that's following Him, there's going to be a continual process of transformation. There's going to be growth. We're not going to continue to sit and sing in the sweet by and by. And I will make you fishers of men. He's not saying, and I will give you a 12-week how to 
witness class. Listen, we know how to witness. The witness is what Jesus has done in our lives. He says, if you're following me, you're going to be on board with the mission that I'm on. And the mission that he is on, he has come to save those that were lost. And he says, follow me and I will make you. Any believer that's following him should have a passionate desire to see others come to know Christ. Mark's going to lay that out for us in our gospel. Jesus said in chapter 9, verse 35, He said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And this discipleship that He calls us to, not only does He call us to it, but He models for us how to do it, how to make disciples. Chapter 9, verses 43 to 50, if you want to turn there with me. He says this, related to disciple, related to following Him, related to being transformed by Him. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, we've, we've followed a... Not only a crossless gospel, but we perpetuated a hellless gospel. The gospel is not good news unless it tells us or reflects for us what the bad news is, right? I mean, good news is good news, but it's only good news in comparison to what the bad news is. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And, and Jesus calls us to perpetuate a gospel and live a life as disciples as though there is. He says in verse 50 of this passage, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Remember the story of the rich young man that comes to Jesus. He says, how can I have eternal life? And, and Jesus gives him the commands. And he says, I've done all of those things. And then Jesus turns to him and then says, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And what did the young man do? He turned away and left Jesus. You see, the command not, is not there. and The practice is not there for us to sell all of our possessions. But what is there, the principle that's there, is that we must love Him above anything else that we have. And if we don't, we need to be willing to get rid of it so that we might follow after Him. Jesus said to him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in your heaven and come and follow me. The end of the story is, he went the other way. One last verse that I'll share with you. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, uh, no one has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel. 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. We're going to be on a ride of the adventure of discipleship through the gospel of Mark. And, and I'll go ahead and tell you, just as I'm preparing, it's going to be challenging in my life. And it's going to be challenging in your life as we, in a sense, put feet to what we've professed to believe, and that is that we are Christ followers. So put on your seatbelt and let's get ready to go, right? Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to go through the first 11 verses briefly this morning as we introduce the gospel. Mark begins writing in verse 1 by saying, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he he makes it very clear that what he is going to be writing of is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of the gospel. And if I asked this morning, how do you define gospel? Most of us would say what? This is where you respond. Gospel, good news. And that's literally what gospel means is good news. But in that is contained the good news of the life and ministry of Christ, who is the sinless Son of God, who came to earth, born pure, holy, without sin, lived a sinless life, and suffered death on a cross in your and my place. He did for us what we deserved, or He received what we deserved. And while He was on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the sinless Son to pay the punishment that you and I so rightfully deserved. And the good news is, is that He died. And he was buried, but he conquered sin by raising from the dead so that you and I might have not only the hope of salvation, but of eternal life. And so he begins to proclaim that through his life. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, by the way. It's his title. Some Bibles would translate that Messiah. It was the promised one to the nation of Israel that God would send the Messiah, the one who would deliver His chosen people. And now here it is, Mark is proclaiming that this Jesus is the Christ, the one that has been promised. He goes on to say that He is the Son of God. Mark alone uses this to show the distinct and unique relationship between the Father and and His only begotten Son. Verse 2 and 3. He quotes from Malachi and Isaiah, where it was prophesied of this forerunner, John the Baptist, who had come, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and make His path straight. And so John the Baptist is fulfillment where it's prophesied in Malachi and Isaiah that there would be a forerunner that would come. And he's fulfilling that. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance 
for sin. And we need to look at this very carefully. You see, baptism was not a common thing in that day. There were those Gentile proselytes who had become Jews, and yes, there was a rite of baptism that they would go through, but it was more often a self-induced baptism, where they would baptize themselves, signifying a washing away of sin, very similar to what was given in the law, where there was the ceremonial cleansing, the washing with water, etc., to prepare for the sacrifices, but it did not absolve the core and root of sin. And so John's calling out, and he's preaching, and he's calling for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Repentance. To turn from. And, and, and it's no different today as it was then. That in that coming to Christ, there is a necessity, as we're going to see clearly through Mark's gospel, that if one wants to come to Christ, there must be a willingness, a will decision to turn from and turn to Him. Not only is it necessary at that point of salvation, but it doesn't stop there in the life of the believer. If you don't believe me on this, you can ask my wife. I have to repent every day, every hour of the day. Amen? A baptism of repentance for the what? Forgiveness of sin. In one of the other gospel accounts, John also is recorded as saying that one is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That tells me that repentance is not just a one-time thing, but repentance in our lives is a continual thing. Because listen, I'm bombarded, you're bombarded with the messages of the world every day, and I have my own flesh to contend with. Anybody say amen to that? The forgiveness of sin has been taken care of in the life of the believer at the moment that we trust Christ for our salvation. Forgiveness of past, present, and future sin. But we need to recognize that sin in our life, whether it be momentary or habitual, does not affect our relationship with God, but it certainly affects our fellowship with Him. We know that the Bible says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so the believer asks, well, do I, do I need to confess my sins so that I might be forgiven and that my relationship be restored to Him? No, it's so that our fellowship might be restored with Him. I can remember when my kids were growing up and they would do stuff that Dad didn't approve of. Anybody experience that? And oftentimes, I would know that they had done that thing that they would say that they didn't do initially, right? And I would go along with their game, 
hoping that they would get to a place that they would be able to come to me and say, Dad, you know that thing that you know that I did? Well, I did it. You see, my relationship to them never changed. They were my daughter and they were my son and they will always be my daughter and my son. But that thing was a barrier in our fellowship. And in order to restore that fellowship, there needed to be an acknowledgement. You see, that's the same way it is in the life of the believer. When we sin, yes, God's forgiveness is there. That, That sin is not held on our account because of what Christ has done. But in our lives, where there is habitual ongoing sin, there is a fellowship that is broken between us and the Father. And He so desires for us to get rid of that barrier. And it's simply by just acknowledging that. So John preaches a message, repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And in verse 6, we see John the Baptist as a very unique guy. Some have a problem with my cowboy boots. You'd really have a problem if I came Sunday morning dressed like John the Baptist was. John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I've never heard a legalist insist that they eat locusts and wild honey. <laughs> John was dressed in keeping with really the fashion that that Elijah had worn as a Nazarite. And so he's this wild and woolly guy out in the desert wearing camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And I would imagine he didn't smell very well. But then he preached in verse 7, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. You see, John was literally having thousands come out into the wilderness to participate in this baptism of repentance. Undoubtedly, he was having a following, but he wanted to make sure they knew. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and to untie. The one who would typically stoop down and untie The sandal of one in that day was of the lowest caste of society, a slave. And John, this great preacher, fulfiller of prophecy, says, listen, there's one that's coming after me whose sandals I am am not willing to stoop below the lowest person in culture and untie his sandals. He's coming after me. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that we receive when we come to Christ, that indwells the heart of the believer. And John's saying, listen, this is just an outward baptism, but there's a baptism that's coming later that only He can give that is far greater than this baptism. In other words, it's not by works, but it's by faith. Verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He came up immediately out of the water and immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You're my beloved Son, with You I am well pleased. 
Why was Jesus baptized? It's always been a question. Because we know that if, that if Jesus was the Son of God, if we know that if Jesus was God, then He had to be sinless, right? And John's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. But so much that Jesus identified with us, He didn't need the baptism for His own sin, but He was identifying with us in His baptism, and He was foreshadowing, although He was sinless, He needed no baptism of repentance. But he associated with himself with sinners like you and I, and he placed himself among the guilty. Not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for his guilt, but for our guilt. Not because he had a fear of the wrath of the Father that would be poured out on sin, but to save us from the wrath of sin. Ironically. All of the reasons that Jesus was not baptized, all the reasons that were not there for Jesus to be baptized in the Jordan, were all there when he went to the cross for you and I. You see, it was for you and I that he who was sinless, he who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin for us. It's for you and I who deserved the wrath of a holy God because of our sins. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, took the wrath of the Father. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world and all those who would trust Him. There's a call throughout the Gospel of Mark. In response to what he has done for us that we follow him as believers and make that message known. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.